Hello. These days, mental health is at the forefront of all of our minds. But what we are also seeing is that it's those very people who help us get better when we're sick who are struggling with the worst effects of this particular crisis. In this series, we'll be exploring how mental illness is rising amongst healthcare professionals faster than any other sector of society. And we'll also look at ways that brilliant people around the world are finding new ways to help those who help us. Welcome to the Healing the Healers podcast series with me, Dr. Tapas Mukherjee, Medical Director at the Havas Links Group. And hello from me, Dr. Freddie Lewis, Senior Medical Advisor at Havas Links Group, as we discuss what we in the wider healthcare community can do about it. With special guests from around the UK, mental health experts, and great minds from across the Havas network itself. This series promises to be insightful, emotional at times, and above all else, a timely reminder that mental health challenges can affect any one of us. This podcast will contain references to suicide and mental illness, which may distress you or stir up some unwelcome emotions or memories of mental health issues. So listener discretion is advised if you believe you may be affected. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. I'm joined today by two very special guests in the form of Sarah Price and Phil Streit. They both work at Havas and they've played a major role in helping us get our white paper out this year. But rather than myself introduce them, I'll hand it over to both of them so that they can tell us a little bit about themselves. So Sarah, let's start with you. Hi Tapas, thanks so much for having us today. It's lovely to be here and we've really enjoyed all of the podcasts today. So it's nice to join a, uh, a star lineup of people. Um, so my name is Sarah Price. I look after our media division here at Havas Links and we specialise particularly at looking at RX media. So that's understanding what media placements resonate best and perform hardest for brands as it pertains to healthcare professionals, patients and the wider healthcare community. We've also got a separate hat that looks after our CX team. And because we believe that data is intrinsically linked to both media and customer experience, that's why I'm really uh, delighted to be here today with Phil Streit, who is the brainchild behind our latest data product, Point One. And so speaking of Phil, um, Phil, tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Hello, everyone. Yep, Phil Streit. I am our global head of product strategy. Um, I have a background in research and strategy. I'm absolutely fascinated with everything to do with understanding our customers and finding new ways of unlocking brand growth and communicating to our audiences. And it's it's great to have you both on here, first of all. But secondly, that massive background of strategy and interest in behavior and understanding data has obviously now culminated in this latest data offering, point one, that you mentioned uh, just a little bit before, Sarah. Can you tell us a little bit about what has been the driving force behind creating that offering and why has it been so relevant to the white paper itself? So when we were um, building out our campaigns, we were using lots of different data sets to try and generate meaningful answers to the problems that our customers were coming to us with. And when we were looking outside of our wheelhouse to the YouGovs and the Global Web Index, like some of our really large data partners that we use in our day-to-day lives, their data solutions are, uh, you know, they're quickly accessible, they're malleable, 
they dig deeper into customers' lives. And we thought, well, why don't we have something like this in healthcare that can then be applied to both our creative campaigns and how we understand our customer segments. And it gets pulled through and utilized into our media plans and, and some of the you know, smart and sophisticated tools that are out there for media planning at the moment that enable us to create those algor- algorithmic plans. And there was just a real need because I think a lot of the competitors that are, that are out there at the moment are, are either um, developed... Uh, products developed that are PowerPoint slides that then limit their utility. They're sort of sat on a shelf for ages. They're not statistically relevant. So their sample sizes are really small. That gives really a load of lists uh, of of kind of problems that we were trying to solve. And we think that ultimately point one can help us understand more of those meaningful differences around our audiences, how they interact, how they behave, and then enable us to act on that. Well, I was I was just going to say um, that I think everything you said is is of course super relevant, but there was an extra level of relevance that I be- I think became apparent while the white paper was being written, in that you were holding on to or you had at your fingertips some really unique um, insights into the mindset of doctors, particularly with regards to their emotions around how they deal with workplace stresses. Um, and it was, it was lovely to be able to access that while we were writing the white paper. Was that something that you created um, up front or was it a, a, almost like a, a, a coincidence? Was it a, a happy output of it that you hadn't planned for in terms of the, the wealth of data that has now become so relevant in mental health as well. It was um, quite serendipitous, to be truthful. Um, as a brand strategist, one of the things that I look to try to do is identify ways in which we can make brands relevant, modern health brands relevant in you know the worlds of our customers. And as such, as part of looking into what a data offering would do, wanted to put a big focus on understanding their attitudes towards healthcare systems to understanding the day-to-day implications of their roles and their lives and then therefore how brands can relate to those. And as such, we built out a list of questions that really got to the core of some of those issues. So um, one of the scales that we use and reference quite extensively in, in the thought leadership is something called the PANAS um, validated data set and what it does is it allows us to take a look at the emotions of a particular group of people and then again relate that and benchmark that versus you know joe blogs on on the street so a really powerful tool and the just the results that came through were so stark that it it started the conversation that then obviously dovetailed very nicely with some of the work that you were doing tapas on healing the healers and you know looking at some of the data we've got on average, 43% more negative emotions experienced than the average general public, which is, you know, a really stark reminder of just how complex and how difficult and stressful some of the roles of these clinicians that we're trying to reach are. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that has um, been really nice to see from the data that you have uh, uncovered is that we have some headline figures that there are large numbers of doctors who want to leave their workplace or who... Um, maybe even have committed suicide. And these are these are shocking statistics. But what you've started to find are the small nuances that have led up to that. 
the fear in the workplace, the distrust among colleagues. Um, and, and I think without that, we probably would have lacked a lot of the um, heartfelt and heartbreaking sort of uh, elements that some people have really uh, found resonate with them in the white paper. So with that in mind, is, is there anything that particularly sticks in your mind uh, that was a shocking or unexpected finding from uh, the interviews, the surveys, the data that you've, uh, you've experienced? Absolutely. I mean, so much um, was, was shocking in terms of what we uncovered through point one. And the start point, I think, is actually the, the scale of the problem. And I think for us sat in the UK, it's very easy for us to say, you know, we understand there's some issues. But what I don't think I really appreciated fully was the, the scale and the extent of it. So in the white paper, we talk about death by a thousand cuts. And, you know, as a researcher, what I would typically try to do is look at the differences between customers, try to look at things and, and identify what the true drivers are. But what what we found was really just the overall scale of this. It's it's almost an attack from every single angle possible from the patients that are demanding in, in the healthcare system, from their colleagues through, uh, you know, bullying in, in the workplace, through limited resource across every single you know, domain of a physician's day-to-day life, in some way they were being challenged by the, the current status quo. The thing that really kind of um, hit home for me were, was the, we're able through point one to take a look at the, the small differences that might be between, you know, whether it's generational between millennials and Gen X and boomers, or whether it's at a market by market level. And I think the two pieces of data that really stick out for me were, Firstly, um, millennials, and we are seeing across almost every single criteria that that we test. So whether it's workplace loneliness or if it's I'm prepared to do my job uh, or it's, you know, the demands of patients across almost every single criteria, millennials were statistically significant higher in terms of the impact that each of those factors is currently having on. And um, I think we break the data down in in the white paper, but one of the stark figures I always think is that it, on average, we have about 24% of physicians that are registering an intent to leave the profession in the next five years. When you look at the millennial data, you'd expect it to be much, much lower, but in fact, it's still around and hovering around the 20% mark. So it's really, truly, you know, headline grabbing stuff that... Um, that the numbers are, are that significant and that high. The other piece which I find quite fascinating is uh, some of the data that relates to Japan in particular. So we know that things in the UK aren't great. We've got doctor strikes, you know, left, right and centre at the moment. And when you start looking at the data, when it comes to a lot of the other, you know, drives of job satisfaction and distress, we see that the UK is actually not that bad. Um, Spain, Italy are much higher. But what you would typically expect to see in Japan is there's a a cultural phenomenon behind them answering surveys where they usually um, go for answers that sit within the middle of of a scale. What we saw in particular with the distress scores in Japan is that actually there was this huge propensity to, to you know, go towards the extreme of distress as well as some of those other negative emotions. So, you know, 
challenging what we conventionally know within the research world of of how people respond to that survey. And for me, again, just heightens the the level of distress and burnout that exists in in particular in Japan. Ninety um, percent of all of the physicians that we surveyed in Japan were experiencing very high levels of distress. So really concerning figures. And so um, how do we see physicians changing the way that they interact with media as well as social media? And are there differences around the world in that respect? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because we, I think Phil's alluded to this also in, in his in his answers to some of these other questions, but um, we have to take the wider cultural backdrop of kind of what is happening in the world at the moment, in the world of media, in the world of um, pressures on health systems, et cetera, to understand how that is really the really external forces. And then you've got the professional element that sits in that. So I think your point on the, the wider landscape that we sit in at the moment is doomy. You know, it's I think people are um, disengaging. We're seeing this in terms of the world of broader media, but we're seeing people disengaging from news outlets. Um, They're now uh, not consuming um, news in the way that they historically did. And obviously, we've seen such a continuous rise in, in social media and the consumption of that because people are trying to get distracted from that day to day drudgery, then you add on top of that the stresses of a profession. And, you know, you can very much understand that clinicians will orientate towards uh, professional channels to fulfill professional needs and expect um, pharmaceutical brands to turn up their in professional and engaging ways, but they'll use their social media as as uh, lighthearted relief and, and, a, and a bit of an outlet. Um, and I think they use these uh, those moments in their days to sort of distract themselves a little bit more from just their kind of the conventional stresses on their on their lives. But I think they also are turning to those channels and using them differently themselves. We found um, in the survey as well that more clinicians are becoming creators of content. They, they are leaning into their own levels of authenticity and it's marrying up to the trends that we see with um, influencer growth in general, I think, in media. And we saw, I think it was about 73%, um, Phil, if you want to fact check me, but it was 73% of oncologists globally had started producing medical content for the usage of social media and that they were um, more than like about uh, there was a there was a significant amount of them who were producing social media content more than once a month, um, and you have to you know. And I, what I really love about what we have with point one um, is that it helps us understand those broader macro trends. It then helps us understand what people are doing um, as a result of them, but it also asks us interesting questions, which is. Why is that growth in medical content created by those clinicians uh, on social media growing? You know, why is that happening? How can we tap into that as a behavior? How do we start? uh, How does that then influence when they're looking at their decision journeys, how they turn to their peers and what and what's quite interesting about that? Sorry to interrupt, but like it just it makes me think that I uh, my assumption was 
that people are shying away from using media because of the negative stories. But what you're actually saying is they're almost grasping that problem in their own hands and now trying to turn it around and get the truth or their, you know, their understanding of the situation out there using those very social media platforms, which is not only a great opportunity for everybody to, to, to work with those people, but just fascinating in itself, right? In terms of what we're observing now. Yeah, and I uh but I there is a caveat to this and this is again one of the pieces that we're trying to mitigate with what we're producing is I guess the generalizations and the sweeps of this. So um with respect to content creation and taking those oncologists specifically and just fact checking myself here right now, 28% of that you see the content creators rising in oncology in Brazil, but in Japan it remains zero. So that that is, you know, that is an interesting thing because if you were um, a marketeer and you were sat there at a regional level or a global level, you'd say, let's create our influencer plans. And actually that might not be right for Japan. You know, you have to take those things into consideration. And, and then how much effort you're going to tap into utilizing those oncologists in Brazil who are going to be your content creators. So um, it's nuanced. It really is nuanced. And uh, there is an opportunity. I think brands, there is an opportunity for brands to realize that more and therefore do more to tap into those trends. Yeah. Uh, well, that was going to be my next question, which was like, what can brand managers and pharma do um, with that knowledge? And, and how do you think the relationship with pharma will therefore change in the next few months or years as we see these trends? This is a, a really interesting question. And I'm, I'm going to answer it in in two parts and then obviously ask Phil to sprinkle his his wisdom on top of it but uh first and foremost is making smarter decisions you know utilizing data to create those marketing mixes that are truly based on um understanding the problems that those customers are experiencing those healthcare professionals are experiencing and then looking at how you build the meaningful strategies that build on those differences, I think is incredibly important. And there is huge amounts of wealth of information out there that shows the success of a brand and the failures of brands at launch by just ignoring those audiences and, and failing to tease those things out. So we need to help pharma create smarter strategies quicker and get those strategies out into the world to test them as hypotheses, not to let them remain this sort of um, hypothetical, but not really relevant. And then you just, you know, you're a local country and you pick up your plan and you're like, oh, well, that wasn't really built based on anything for me. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not going to utilize it. Then this, the second point is we cannot ignore the moral distress of our customers. There is no, I don't think it can sit comfortably with anybody looking at some of the data that we have seen and thinking fundamentally, the way that we start engaging with our customers and understanding the experiences that we want to have and the roles that we play in their lives, we need to change that. Mm. And that could be changing from, we create more thoughtful content and we utilize our placements maybe less, maybe more, because we cannot waste their time. And we have to think about how we 
can engage them differently and measure their satisfaction out of that engagement in more robust ways and learn from it. I mean, even to the point of something that Phil and I were saying, um, you know, we discuss it in the white paper, but asking, uh, you know, asking a doctor, like, how are you today? But why could we not include that as a KPI within our uh, CRM data with our Salesforce or any of our digital interactions? Understand, like getting a temperature check of how a, a doctor is feeling. And, you, you know, as pharmaceutical companies would, you know, they're talking to doctors every single day across all of their Salesforce and all of their non-personal selling touch points. And you could be understanding then how are we making a meaningful impact into these people's lives at a mental health level, not just at a sales level, yeah. um, and how that can ladder up to a customer experience. So we have to change. I, I actually have a, a, a question on, on that very note. Maybe, maybe Phil, this is one for you. And, it, and it's a lot of doctors shared a lot of very personal feelings and statements. They do. <laughs> in that survey and why do you think they were so willing to divulge that information and I'll, I'll explain the reasoning behind the question which is that one of the comments that we often get is will it be appropriate for pharma to to be in this space of supporting mental health is it appropriate is it appropriate for us as the marketing or strategy company to be getting involved in this space but what we're finding is that the doctors are volunteering this information to us so what's going on there they're, they're not just volunteering this data. They're actually, um, we, we've actually had a lot of clinicians say thank you and say this was the first time when somebody's undertaken, you know, an effort to understand me in more detail. Thank you. So we, we leave a little, um, you know, let us know what you think of the survey at the end of the survey. And we had so many clinicians just saying this is something so different. And I think it comes from, and Sarah talked earlier about, you know, Pharma doesn't necessarily understand um, customers as well as as they currently do or should do. Forty six percent of launch brands failed because they failed to understand their target customer. Our data from point one matches very similarly. So we have about two thirds of clinicians that say pharma doesn't understand me fully. So. I think there's a lot of opportunity. It would be very easy for people to dismiss this data and say, it's not relevant to my world, to my brand right now. There's not a lot that I can actually do to influence some of the things that you're talking about. But I think if you looked at it a, a little bit deeper, there's so much opportunity with within, firstly, what Point One Data is highlighting as well as through Healing the Healers. You know, um, we know and the, the thought leadership alludes to the fact that if people experience high levels of stress, their cognitive decision-making, their ability to understand new information, new brands that you might try to be uh, communicating to them is, is significantly diminished. We also know that cognitive burnout um, and, you know, the burnout of the, there's only so much capacity that the human brain has for disaster. So that also has implications for things like disease state awareness if you're trying to push an unbranded message to a clinician that's surrounded by stress, it's important you understand that and relate to that. And again, there is also communication archetypes, communication opportunities that you can think through um, based on some of the data that we're bringing to the forefront. How can you be a force for stability in you know a world of distress for our customers? So 
lots of interesting implications. I think we're only starting on this journey. You know, the the white papers highlighted uh, some headlines and some things that need to be discussed, but I think there's so much so much more to come in terms of what we can do and what pharma can do to solve the issue. What we cannot do is look at clinicians in this kind of homogenous group and say, even within the field of dermatology, taking this as an example, we can't just put you as a bag of dermatologists and then look at you against your ability to prescribe a specific product. There is so much more to those group of individuals than that that can help build that better connection and and, and customer experience and help clinicians uh, get better at their jobs and help alleviate some of those stresses, as well as helping drive distinction with uh, a pharma company. For example, AI is everywhere, everything all at once, and everybody talks about the application and the adoption of it. We know that dermatologists are significantly more excited about it. We know that they want to integrate it into their practices significantly more. We know that that differs through the age, uh, ages of, of, of different clinicians as well. And that in itself also causes a point of tension, right? If you've got people who have a motivation and a desire to do something like the millennial group, yes, they will be looking to... Um, greater upskill themselves in understanding AI and dermatology. And they will also look at how they can start integrating that into their practices so they'll have a quicker adoption of it. But what does that mean for the generation who are less inclined, who have all of those skills, all of that patient experience that we may historically call them the boomers, but if they're not, uh, if they're not embracing AI Is that also not an opportunity? Are we not looking at how we can make some of these things accessible to to dermatologists to tap into all of that rich experience that those people have? Um, There are also, I think, Phil, you found some really interesting drivers on on sort of patient outcomes and how uh, millennials were kind of different on on patient outcomes as, as a difference that pharma really should take on board and therefore act upon. I think um, that certainly some really interesting data coming through. So um, one of the most interesting things I found looking, so we ask a question that's all about patient outcomes are the most important thing to me. And what we see is that, you know, boomers rate that and, and, and agree with that statement to a really high level. Same with Gen X. What we're now seeing is that millennials are significantly lower in terms of how they rate that response. So I think it's fascinating that even the core values of doctoring is changing and that it's not always about the patient and it's not always, and I don't think it always has been, but we're seeing that to a greater extent. And obviously as as pharma, we currently, you know, turn up in global healthcare professional campaign has got, you know, hope for this patient written all over the front. And that that is the main hierarchy of what is led with for led with from a communication standpoint. I think if if anything, my mantra is that, you know, using point one data allows us to understand differences in those audiences. To, to ways and, and means that we've never been able to do before to at least try to find ways to engage with these customers better. I think the data shows that we have that you, you've got about 1% of a total 
you know, workload of, of a physician, you've got about 1% to engage with them of their time. So how can you make the very best of that 1% engagement that you have? How can you provide them content at particular times of the day or serve it up in particular ways that means that you can start breaking through some of the, you know, the cognitive distress that does exist? Yeah. And, and I-, I also just... Uh, sorry, Travis, I'm just going to add to that as a real intersection of a couple of different topics that we've discussed today about how these things come together. Um, the channels in which we provide information do condition how receptive people are to them. And those channel choices, be it mistrust with a rep or a greater, um, you know, going towards those content creators of their peers um, and, and how that then gets expressed through social media. One of the things I think we're 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 lacking um, at the moment is when we're looking at that content um, and understanding the context it turns up in, and then understanding how do we maintain a level of engagement with it. I feel personally that everything I'm sort of seeing from farmer at the moment is is a maybe. Um, a play on the severity of the diseases that we have or a little bit of sort of trying to get it a little bit lighthearted. But in reality, using things like humour, for example, in the most um, empathetic and sensitive way in some of these channels, like again, social media is where we tend to go to be entertained. Um, we have a huge role now to try and... Uh, make some of these communications fit for purpose in those channels or even just lighten them up to a certain extent. You know, medical education doesn't have to be dry, you know, and when we're taking on topics that are of interest to our customers that, you know, could even be changes and advancements in the field of um, jack inhibitors or AI or whatever, we can we can really sort of understand what are the best tones to take to mitigate that moral distress? Is it empathetic, sympathetic or humorous? What is the right place to do that? And then how can that help somebody walk away from an experience feeling refreshed and lightened versus I've just been burdened with a load of knowledge and a load of information? And again, I believe that a lot of the decisions that we make in in pharma and marketing is based either on gut feel or it's based on feedback from sales representatives. And actually, a really important element of this is to listen to the clinicians themselves, but listen to them at a scale that is statistically significant and meaningful, which is really what point one was always designed for, was to make sure that your strategies aren't based on N equals seven, like it has to have weight behind it. So then you can start having that confidence that maybe you could explore a new territory or could you maybe you could write your content a little bit differently because you've got something that evidence is behind it. So really empowering marketeers to look at some of these uncomfortable points that we've talked throughout this whole white paper on that may make them feel shameful, that the way that we are doing things hasn't changed, but now we're arming them with the data and the insight that should enable them to do that. Phil, is there anything that you want to add to that idea of where do we go from now Given what we know, how do we make sure we're doing the right thing from an ethical point of view? Absolutely. And great question, Tap. I think the first thing to mention is that pharma hasn't moved on significantly in you know the last 30 years in terms of how we engage with customers. The 
sales rep is still the center point of all of the communications that are likely to go to uh, to customers. I think there's a need when we're starting to see engagement and time with the sales rep and trust in the sales rep um, reduce. I think there's a need for pharma to reevaluate the marketing mix in general and take a look at ways to be even more respectful of customers' time. One of the things that, you know, and would would love for point one to go on and contribute towards would be how can we look at segmenting customers in different and new ways? And how can we use additional data sets to build out what the customer looks like? It might be that, you know, we integrate some of the Panas validation emotion score into the way that we segment customers. So we can identify and understand those physicians that you know are are so burnt out and low that you know we we as an organization and for our for our clients we start to treat them with uh, you know some respect and provide some boundaries to how and when we communicate with them so i think that's somewhere where you know we'd love point one data to support moving forward thanks for that phil i think I mean, it's a really good aspiration, but I, I hope it's more than an aspiration. And I hope that is the direction that we move in. I think that is definitely the the right thing for us to be doing. And I, I, I love the points that you made just there. Um, and it kind of brings me on to the final question, really, which is what do you think the future holds, not just for how we communicate, but for the offering that we've been talking about today, the, the point one, um, you know, research tool what what's what's next so we are at a really fantastic time in our life cycle we will be uh, launching in officially in the next couple of weeks so after lots of sleepless nights many many long hours we will finally be um launching this onto the world so firstly we hope for a successful launch but the ambitions for what we are doing here go way above and beyond where we currently are. So at the moment, you know, it's it's relatively, it's, it's large scale what we have undertaken, but um, we hope to scale significantly in the next year. So more audiences, more markets, building out a longitudinal data set so that we can start to see how each of these trends is changing over time. Um, even more statistical analysis and something that we're really keen to look at as well is how can we start to model the data set that we have in point one with other data sets so that we can start building these, you know, huge comprehensive, you know, footprint of data for each of our customers that allows us to understand them in a way that, you know, we start to get towards what consumer brands might be able to do so really fantastic and fascinating where this goes next and i think to add on that i hope that point one delivers upon you know its original aspiration which is really to foster better collaboration uh, between client like our, our pharma companies and their different departments between commercial and sales and marketing and market research and business intelligence by giving them access to a data set that's universal across them all um, and giving them that holistic view of a customer that goes beyond just what they have or what they get in, in the CRM. Um, I also hope it, it, it helps speed the time uh, to market for some of these products. 
that our, our companies that we work with are making that we believe are going to be really beneficial to patients and patient outcomes by enabling our our, our customers to, to understand their communities that they're working with and, and the healthcare professionals that they work with better and quicker and at scale and um, through sort of accessible data sets. And then I, I also hope uh, through that as well, it just saves them time and money and that money specifically can be used towards creating better and, and more relevant things, you know, things that we've talked about today better medical education, more personalized and relevant to different segments, for example, or better patient support materials um, that really give clinicians the the tools that they need to to help alleviate some of these burdens that we've talked about today. And and by saving people time and money and resource, I think we can help alleviate that overburdened system and that under-resourced system that we're seeing at the moment and pharma really deliver upon their promises of, of trying to improve outcomes. Thank you again for your great answers. Now, speaking of time, we are rapidly coming to the end of this particular podcast. So thank you very much for those um, brilliant, passionate and uh, expert uh, ideas and, and suggestions and uh, answers that you've given us today. You're very welcome, Tapas. <laughs> thank you very much. Just to, to end, I'm going to give you some quickfire questions, if I may. And I want you to just really think about the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, If I ask you each for what's one key takeaway that you hope listeners of the podcast will remember a week or a month or even a year from now, having listened to what we've discussed? I think we can't ignore the scale of this problem that has been highlighted with the white paper. I think the world is very uh, focused on technology and AI and all of these really new and shiny things that are actually designed to replace humans when at the heart of the matter it is the humans that we're trying to interact with. So with that in mind, I believe the data that we have on the PANAS score and uh, the drivers and stresses in lives should be actively integrated into our clients' customer segmentation for us then to create those more meaningful connections and consider those relevant contexts that we turn up in. Taking my example previously of sales reps having a KPI that is around how you are um, measuring the the mental wellness of, of the people that you're interacting with wouldn't that be a lovely thing to, to be able to see how that workforce burnout is getting addressed or how you're using how you're you're using your communications and your power to try and help alleviate that in somebody's life? You know, Phil, I feel sorry for you going going next after that answer because it was a very poetic and complete answer, which I was totally not expecting. But thank you very much for that. Thank you, Sarah, for setting such a high benchmark. And <laughs> I mean, my my themes, uh, you know, are pretty consistent with some of what, what Sarah has just said. I think my, my key takeaway is that, you know, physicians are humans. I think we often sit in, you know, workshops or client situations and we talk about these, you know, ethereal beings that are absolutely robust and we'll get through anything and just the the going through everything that you know we looked at through point one 
it's so clear that they struggle firstly with all of the same things that we struggle with on a day-to-day basis. There's talk of divorces, of having to sell cars to be able to deal with the cost of living. They, they have the same challenges as us, but on top of that, they're also dealing with acute, stressful situations, death on a day-to-day basis. And I think firstly, it's just take away the appreciation of you know what, what a fantastic job that they are doing. I think the second thing for me is more to really focus in on how we can change as an industry moving forward. I think we've talked about the traditional go-to-market model. I think for me, based on everything that we know, you know, know about customers and how much distress they are currently going through, I'd love to see more effort and more ways, more partnerships, more content that is aligned to respecting those boundaries as well so for me I'd, I'd love to see point one data to be used to really innovate around how we communicate to customers and i'm going to jump on top of that just because that's uh i i also believe that they've set a very high benchmark there and i believe that in order to surpass it we have to understand that individual but we also have to understand the society and the cultures that they live in. And we all use the very broad brush strokes of, you know, the economy is X or the health system is Y, but that aging population in Japan and those pieces that Phil was outlining in terms of the the actual distress that Japanese clinicians are, are experiencing when they don't have a junior workforce who are coming up beneath them because their society is is an aging population you start when you can start layering these things on together then you get a huge you know you get a, that more sort of clearer and sometimes quite frightening view of really what what we have to work within and we are so far beyond that point of gross generalizations that really we're doing ourselves and we're doing the customers and, the, and, our, and our audiences and, and the patients that they serve a disservice by just putting everybody into the same uh, into the same boat because you're our top ten markets that we want to go talk to. When we really have to tee out those intricacies to create the most resonant campaigns. Thank you, guys. That was um, they were lovely, both lovely answers. For anyone who's interested in this area of data, personalization, um, even any, you know, any of the points we've spoken about today or in the white paper, do you have any suggestions for good long reads, interesting books, or is there anything that's particularly inspired you along the way? So this is a bit of a have-ass plug. Um, <laughs> Which seems a bit strange, but I uh, I absolutely love the Meaningful Media podcast with Ben Downing, um, which is run uh, every month where they take a topic and understand how do you make being, you know media meaningful for different audiences. Mm. And we recently did, uh, they recently did the the me, um, the Meaningful Brand Survey with Seema Patel, and she was talking through how brands should turn up in the lives of 
of our, our, our consumers and in society, how we tap into cultural norms, you know, some of the things that we talked about today. Um, and I think it's really, you know, as I said, if you're taking that outward in point, if we're trying to understand humans, then we contextualize it in the world that they live in. It's a really good podcast for like orientating yourself around what's happening in media, what's happening in culture, where's the intersection between the two. I personally find it really inspiring and I learn quite a lot from it every single time I listen to it. So if anyone's interested in that particular podcast, not that it's going to be anywhere near as good as our own, of course, where would they go? How would they go on to complete your plug? Where where would they go and how would they find it? Um, I listen to it on Spotify, but I believe if you just put it into any good search engine, (laughs) you will find... Uh, you'll find the Have Us um, Meaningful Media podcast okay. and you can listen to it on a platform of your choice. But only to augment our, our conversations today, Tapas of course. Mukherjee. And, and, Dr. Um, Tapas Mukherjee, not to, not, to, uh, <laughs> not to replace. Rapidly losing control of this podcast here. But Phil, <laughs> have you, what's, what about yourself? What have you found as an inspiration during this process? Well, firstly, I think it's interesting that this is the uh, rapid section of questions that you had for us <laughs> and we've totally failed. And the other thing, um, I thought it was interesting that when you asked, you know, which long read or, uh, you know, which book would you pick up that both myself and Sarah, who are two very busy parents are, are going to give you podcasts instead. Ah, but no, okay. the um, I, I'm a big fan of the high performance podcasts. I think that there's a lot to learn that already exists from very successful people. I think a lot of the subjects they touch upon in terms of, you know, resilience and managing stress and high stress environments, there's, there's so much we can learn from successful business mm-hmm. as well as others. So um that is is, would would be uh my recommendation all of the stuff is is brilliant yeah great great answer um and now finally in our quick fire not so quick fire round then (laughs) phil what is the one thing that you've been most proud of um from start to finish of the creation of point one and the um addition of content into the white paper phil's right the thing i'm proudest of is just getting the thing done and and it's <laughs> it's been a huge undertaking you know it it has been a about a year of work to get to this point to get to launch um and then you know some some on and off between that balancing other priorities but i'm i'm most proud that we've just got 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 it to this stage and that you know it has already shown from one small use case of point 1 just how stark and interesting the findings are and how important those implications can be for our industry so from from one small start i hope that we can go on further but i'm i'm incredibly proud to have you know got to this point but also importantly have this drive a lot of the healing the healers thought leadership yeah. and my my uh what sounded like my point of direction, which was Phil Strike, was actually my uh, point of pride. Is Aww. I'm very proud of of Phil. I'm very proud of what's come out of his brain, his way of looking at this problem of of a lack of data, and then the the empathy and collaboration that he's had with people like yourselves, Tap and 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 Vernon, our chief medical officer, and, and people within the industry to create a survey that is reflective of the needs of our audiences. And then again, having that tenacity to pull it through um, 
whilst there are, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't be launching this thing in, in a time of, you know, global crises and recessions and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I'm very, very proud of all the work that, that Phil's done to make it happen. And for any um, clients or pharmaceutical companies or anyone who's listening who wants to find out more about Point One or is excited to find out how it might integrate into their work, what, what should they do? Should they get in touch with you directly? I love that you've answered, you've asked that question. Yes, please. So we will be at the SFE conference in Berlin in October. Um, please Google it to find the dates. Uh, you will see us in the PME very, uh, very soon. And you can also find both myself and Phil on LinkedIn or go through your friendly have us uh, contact that you may have, please drop us a line. We are more than more than happy to talk you through what we've discovered and what we can work with you to discover. Okay, excellent second plug there, Sarah. Well done. Um, now, on that note, I think we really have covered all of the questions and we've managed to get through the quick fire round as well. So, all that remains is for me to thank both of you for giving it your all this week. I think it was a brilliant. Um, episode and I've really enjoyed listening to both of you as I hope our listeners have too. Thank you and goodbye from myself, Sarah and Phil. Thanks guys. Thank you very much Tapas. Thank you all yeah.